Good morning, everyone, once again. I want to invite you to open your copy of God's Word to the book of James, where we continue in our series that we entitled, Get Wise. James is making the case to believers who are scattered throughout the Mediterranean world that there is a way to live in light of the gospel. The good news of Jesus changes not only our eternal status before God, but also transforms us into a people who live increasingly like their Savior, Jesus Christ. We live in His wisdom because He is the wisdom of God. Today, we're going to be reading a series of passages throughout the book of James. We'll begin and focus primarily on James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, is where we'll, we'll kind of kick things off. We'll focus primarily on 9 through 10. And then, like you will often see throughout the book of James, we are going to see how James weaves a theme throughout the book. And this is a pattern in the book of James. When you study James, it's, it's sometimes helpful to realize that James repeats topics over and over again, weaving in and out of various situations, key themes that he wants us to grasp are the reality of being in God's wisdom. So would you join me? I'm going to read James 1, 9 through 11. I'll pick it up in James 1, 16 through 18. Then I'm going to jump to James 4, verses 6 through 10, and I will finish by reading James 5, 1 through 6. You can follow along using the YouVersion app, of course, or simply on the screen. James 1, 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass... He will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Verse 16 Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Then to James chapter 4, verses 6 and 10. But He gives more grace... Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. And then James 5, beginning in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. 
Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This, all of it, is God's holy, inerrant, eternal, and powerful word. May He add His blessing to its reading and its proclamation. In our study of the book of James, we are realizing how critical it is for us to grasp the the good news of Jesus. If the gospel is true, if God's Son has come to not only pay the penalty for our sins and to free us from sin's power, but to also transform our current lives, the question that must emerge is how are we to live in this life dealing with the reality of a broken world? We call that how wisdom. And James is the New Testament book of wisdom. Godly wisdom is knowing how to do life God's way, right? And so, with that definition, I want to encourage us to look at three themes in this strand that I've read for you throughout the book of James. I could have picked several more passages. We'll highlight those things as we come back to this throughout the book of James. But you're going to see these three themes in this, that godly wisdom includes joyful, humble creatureliness. Don't worry, we'll come back to what that word means here in just a second, all right? Joyful, humble creatureliness. It includes also joyfully humble capital, all right? We'll talk about that in just a minute. And then it also includes joyful, humble confidence. James wants us to grasp the intersection of joy humility, and the way that we live out the fact that we are God's creation entrusted with His gifts, that's His capital that He has given us, and find our confidence not in our stuff or our abilities or our power or influence, but rather find our confidence in who we have been called to be by God's Son, Jesus Christ. So that's what we'll be taking a look at today. Let's talk a, look, uh, <clears throat> a little bit about this idea of joyful, humble creatureliness. Now, I'm not sure. I might have made that word up, okay? It's a great big word. It's beautiful. Uh, uh, but, but maybe not. I didn't look it up this weekend to see if, it, if it's actually in some extended dictionary. It's probably not in most dictionaries, right? What I want us to grasp here is that James wants us to see that we are creatures. There is a creator. We are creatures. And one of the ways that the human race has always gotten mixed up about how to live is we forget that we don't have the rights, knowledge, or wisdom of the creator, but are creatures who've been entrusted with his creation. James begins, if you remember, verse 2, we took a look at it last week, with this theme. He, he set this out as a theme. You understand, James's goal is not to leave you miserable. 
all right? He's going to say some really hard things. But James wants you to understand, I'm fighting for your joy. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience trials of various kinds or multicolored kinds. And then he dives immediately into this idea that we pick up on in verse 9, that there are some people in the church who are in humble circumstances. It says in the Christian Standard Bible, the ESV has it, the, the lowly brother. This is a person who is in poverty or they don't have a lot of stuff. All right? And he says, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. So poor people, James says, you should show up at church boasting and confident of something. And that is the exaltation of God. Before we're done today, we'll talk about what that looks like. But then he also says, let the rich that are amongst you boast in your humiliation. Oh, what does that mean? And what does it mean for you and me, especially if we don't consider ourselves to be particularly rich? Well, we'll take all of that apart. But let's try and break it out into various pieces as we think about this idea of joyfully humble creatureliness. James is going to argue over and over again that the truly wise are humble. If you want to demonstrate that you've really figured out how to live, there's this overarching quality of your life in humility. So if you go to James 3.13, there you go. You're going to see this theme woven in and out. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? You know, I've been a pastor for a long time. It's interesting to me, sometimes people say, oh, this person, they're, they're very, very wise, they're very spiritual. And too often, can I be honest, what they mean is that the person uh, has a lot of Bible knowledge. Well, Paul warns us that knowledge puffs up. And I've met a lot of people in the church that the church esteems as great but they're not humble. They don't exhibit true wisdom. In fact, James says, by his good conduct, let him show his good works in the meekness or humility of wisdom. If you've really got it figured out, you're wise, you're understanding, James says, you know how you can demonstrate that you're truly wise or how you can discern whether or not somebody's wise or not? Check their humility status. Check how they approach the world around them. See, the posture of the godly throughout all of Scripture is always one of humility. The people that God says are like me are the people who understand who they are before God. They know who they are. So James is going to say in James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord. Now, this is a command. It's an imperative. It's something you choose to do. It's not just a quality where some people are humble and other people aren't humble, like a personality type feature. James says, this isn't about your personality. This is a choice to bring yourself intentionally low before God, to remind yourself, I am creature, you are creator, there's nothing I've got that contributes to you. 
And we'll talk about that some more too. So James says, humble yourselves before the Lord. The posture of the godly, it's not only humility before God, it's humility before other people. Uh, And that's found throughout Scripture. I could show it to you in James. We're going to be taking a look at so many passages there. But I want you to see it's not just James. Peter says the same thing. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Now, I want to ask you, just at this moment, when you think of somebody, you say, this person's a great Christian. Do you look for the person that speaks in front of stadiums or has a TV show? Or do you look for the person who exercises humility? They might be the same person. I'm not saying just because you have a big platform doesn't mean you're not humble. But it definitely doesn't mean you are humble. And within a church, how do you discern whether or not somebody's wise? Have you ever thought about that and said, you know, if that person's not humble, they're, they're not very wise. They're not humble before God. They're not humble before other people. See, it's so critical for us to recognize that the root of humility, or at least one of the main roots of humility, is for us to remember that we are creatures. We have been created by a creator. Colossians Paul wrote there, and he said this, For by Him, by God, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, so subatomic particles, right? Molecules, cells, things you can't see with the naked eye, stars that are so far out you can't even see their light, all of them created by God. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, everybody that's in charge, all created by God. Spiritual powers, right, in heaven and on earth, all things created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Let me ask you this. If your heart continues to beat for one more second, is it because you willed it? No. If the oxygen around you continues to give you life, is it because you chose that? See, there's this pride that swells up within us, and we forget how utterly dependent we are on our Creator. Not only for Him to create us, we didn't will ourselves into being, but also for Him to sustain us. James is eager to remind the church over and over again. So watch what he does here as we go through a series of verses, beginning at at verse 10. He's going to say, do you remember that your earthly life is temporary? You don't make the decision whether or not you're going to be here tomorrow. He says specifically to the wealthy in the church, he says, let the rich boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Elon Musk, guess what? You're going to pass away. Jeff Bezos, guess what? You're going to pass away. Richest person sitting in a Southern Baptist church somewhere that's trying to control the pastor through their wealth. Trust me, that happens. It's happened in our church. Guess what? You're going to pass away. We don't determine the number of our days. 
And James says that's where wisdom begins. When you remember this reality that your life is contingent. He goes on, it's not just your your life, but your earthly glory. And by glory, we mean the beauty of our lives, the significance of our lives is temporary. The weight of a particular person's life. We look at some people, they seem to have been appointed by God to have changed the course of human history. And God in His providence does that. But guess what? The glory or the weight or significance or beauty of a person's life is not determined by ourselves. James goes on to say, the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. We're about to experience that. We're already in extreme drought, and it's May, right? So we need to see this happen in reality. Then James says to people, look, just like this, the flower falls, the beauty perishes. He's saying, listen, whatever you think makes your life worthy of admiration or influence or significance, it's all going to fade. You can be the most beautiful, the most powerful, the most strong, the most athletic, the most gifted in a million different ways. All of your glory is going to fade away. He's humbling us, isn't he? He goes on to say this. Guess what? It's not just simply your life or your beauty or significance. Uh, It's also your work. It's always going to be temporary. In fact, James says this, the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And that the word pursuits there can be translated journey or business. As he's going about the busyness of his life, he's going to be fading away even while he's trying to build some earthly kingdom for himself. Well, that should be a strong reminder to all of us of this truth, that only that which is of God and for His glory lasts. Brothers and sisters, we will begin to recognize what real humility is when we live out of this reality. If it is not of God and for His glory, it will count for nothing. Now, the flip side to that is that which is of God, a work of God in our lives by His grace, dependent on Him, trusting in Him, done for His glory out of love of God and love of other people. That lasts forever. Forever. It's opposed to the kind of thing here. So, Paul would write to the Corinthians, he would make this so explicit. He'd say, if anyone builds on the foundation of Jesus Christ with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. It will be revealed, for the day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. He goes on to say, if it doesn't last You may escape if you know the gospel, but it'll be as through the fire. The tongues of God's flames will literally be licking your boots. Brothers and sisters, hear what your brother James is trying to say to you. He's asking you to live in a spirit of humility and joy Because we are creatures. We were never meant 
to carry the weight of God's glory in this world. Adam and Eve thought they could replace God. And ever since then, we've been buying into that illusion, substituting our opinions for God's, substituting our perspective for God's, deciding we get to determine what is right and what is wrong. But there is no joy in that. The joy that comes in living as a believer comes whenever you recognize each and every single day, I don't deserve a single thing that I'm going to get today. All that I've been given and all that I am, including my next breath, is a gift of God's grace to me. I'm His creation and I live for my Creator. And when we live that way, we begin to experience real joy. Now, I've already been hinting at this. James doesn't just want us to, to have this joy and humble creatureliness. He wants us to have joy in humble capital. Now, let me explain what I mean by capital in this particular case. Yes, I picked a C because it rhymes with all the other ones. Not rhymes, but, but it helps me go along with my acrostic there, right? You know, everything begins with a C, okay? So, but, but in this case, <coughs> in this case, it actually works really well. Too often, when you guys hear the word wealth, you immediately think of what? Money in the bank, right? And there's a dangerous way to read James that thinks of wealth only in terms of financial or material capital. And wealth is something that we have in varying degrees in many different areas of our life. Some of us are very wealthy with health. We've been gifted with strong genetics and a lack of disease. Some of us have been gifted with various knowledge or skills that are not our own. We had a chance to be brought up in a home where we were well-taught and well-encouraged and well-strengthened in our childhood upbringing. We had emotionally healthy places to be. But as many of you can testify, because you didn't have that childhood, guess what? You didn't earn that. That wealth didn't come from you. Some of us are wealthy in relationships. We have many friends or we have many family members. We have, and that, that also is a, is a form of wealth. We have power or influence. Some of us have been put in positions of influence in our jobs or in our, in our neighborhoods. And, and so we've been given this sort of power. We have a wealth. Others of us have a background-related thing, work ethic, or perhaps even our nationality. Do you realize that simply by being born in the 20th or the 21st century in the United States of America, you are already in the top 5% of the wealthiest people who have ever lived, bar none. Your ancestors did not have the many toilets. I, I got three toilets in my apartment. There are people all over the world that don't have clean running water. In fact, it is one of the greatest global health needs there is. I can go to any tap in my house and turn on water, and it'll run forever. Now, my water bill will go up, but, but you, you realize how easy it is for me. I don't have to walk 10 miles for that. 
So what I'm trying to say to you is this. Don't ignore what James is saying to the wealthy because you think it only applies to people that are on a billionaire's list. He's talking to you. Because there's not one person in James's church and the churches that are scattered throughout the Mediterranean world that had as much wealth as you do. You've got more stuff, more health, and more wealth in financial resources than probably 90 plus percent of them did in, in almost all of those categories. <coughs> so, here's what James wants us to grasp in verse 10. Go back to verse 10. He says, let the rich, and remember that's the person that's wealthy in any kind of capital, let them boast in their humiliation. What does that mean? Can you go to church and be happy that church is the place where none of your wealth matters? Not your health matters, not your power matters, not your financial resources. That in the church and at the foot of the cross, nothing you've been given counts. James is saying at the church and in front of Jesus, there is a place in which all human beings are brought down to the same level. And you should rejoice in that. You should rejoice that at the church, you get to be in the same place as everybody else. That's what James is saying. Isn't that shocking? Let's see how he unpacks it. Remember this, everything we have or are is a gift of God. James is going to make this explicit. He says, don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Don't be fooled by what the world is trying to tell you. You are not master of your own faith. You are not the captain of your own destiny. Rather, every good and perfect gift that you've got comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. Everything you've got that's good in your life was a gift of God to you. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. Paul says the same thing. He says this to the Corinthian church. What do you have that you did not receive? If you've received it, Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, because I'm an American and I believe in independence and power and hard work. I worked hard. Guess what? There are billions of people who work harder than you all around the world, and they will die in poverty within the next month. As a little boy growing up in Indonesia, the hardest working man that I knew was not my father, who is an incredibly hardworking man, but a triped driver, what we call a bechak. He lived in his little pedicab in front of my house. From dawn till dusk, it was his job to pedal people around the community. They would sit in this little seat, and he would, by his power, bicycle them wherever they needed to go. And through that, he eked out a tiny amount of food each and every day and paid rent on his pedicab. He worked all day long, day after day, month after month, year after year, until he died. You are not 
the result of your own hard work. You were gifted opportunities that literally countless people were never given. And Scripture wants you to know what you've been given is a gift of God. Humble yourself. Here's another thing James wants us to understand. Our earthly wealth, whatever form it takes, remember, this is wealth in relationships, wealth in power or significance or beauty or health, whatever form the wealth is, it's always temporary. Just like everything else in our lives, right? We all know this. Uh, you, you can't literally take your wealth with you, right? Now, across the street from that same house I grew up in overseas, I've told some of you this before, was a Buddhist temple. And in that Buddhist temple, they would regularly have these giant burnings of these giant offerings. And what they would burn were paper cars and elaborate mansions that had been detailed out because the belief was, and they would burn all this paper money, not real money, uh, uh, fake money. They would burn all of it believing that those things would somehow ascend to the deceased person's life and they would have wealth in the afterlife. It just doesn't work that way, folks. Right? We all know the truth is that you can't take it with you. James wants you to remember this. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten. No matter what you get, it always breaks down, right? So, where did he get this idea, by the way? Anybody know? Is James just some closet Marxist? By the way, James 5 was once read in the English Parliament by a guy who presented it as a speech from a socialist. They wanted to hang the person who said those words. It's James 5, 1 through 6. Because we don't like to hear this. Well, he got the words from his brother. His brother Jesus. You remember James is the brother of Jesus, right? Jesus said this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Paul is going to double down and write to Timothy these words. He's going to say, Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of it. So, James is saying, remember, your earthly wealth, whatever form it takes, is temporary. And he's also going to say that hoarded wealth, hoarded wealth corrupts. Now, here's what I mean by that. We all have seen, anybody watch that Hoarders TV show, which is really sad? People with mental health issues end up hoarding all these things. They become very insecure, the piles. As a police officer, I often saw this. We'd have to go into hoarders' homes when they passed away. You'd find rooms full of stuff. It could be giant bottles full of soda or boxes full of papers or magazines or whatever, right? Well, none of us would like to think of ourselves particularly as hoarders, but the opposite of hoarding is stewarding. It's one of our key values here at Redeemer. Everything we have, because it's a gift from God, we believe it is to be managed by us as a trust 
for God, that means we invest it in His kingdom and for the good of others, right? Well, if we're not stewarding, we are hoarding. And hoarded wealth, James says, always corrupts. It corrupts our relationship with other people. Look at how he lays this out in several different places. James 2.6, he says, you, he says, this is happening in the church. You have dishonored the poor man, the person who has less than you in any form of wealth, right? And then he goes on to say, aren't the rich the ones who oppress the poor? The ones who drag you into court, by the way, very good point here is this. Just because something's legal doesn't make it ethical. Just because something's legal doesn't make it ethical. The rich have always found ways to use the court system to oppress the poor. Legality doesn't make it the righteous or moral thing to do. Okay? Many laws are corrupted. James goes on to say, in fact, that the, the uh, rich in their hoarding have condemned and murdered righteous people who don't resist you. When we have to have something, and that matters more to us than the good of this other person, we will do whatever it takes to keep that stuff. That could be our beauty, our health, our significance. It could be our, our place in, a, in an organization. We'll do whatever we have to to keep that position of relative wealth. And by the way, this is not just true in, in one direction. I've met many people who are very poor compared to the American middle class person, but there's always somebody poorer. And they can do the same thing to people who are less wealthy than them in some capacity. Hoarded wealth corrupts not only our relationship with other people, it corrupts our authentic ministry. James says, if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and you say to them, hey, I love you, brother, sister, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? Oof, now he's punching hard. Don't worry, it gets crazier, all right? <laughs> James 2, 7, he talks about the fact that hoarded wealth corrupts our relationship with God. Look at what he says hoarded wealth leads to. The rich are the ones who blaspheme the honorable name of the one who called you. He's talking about God. Hoarded wealth leads to contempt for God that overflows in the speech of your mouth. Listen to how people speak about God, and you will find very often a hoarding soul. They will talk about God as if He is little and they are big. God will not seem like He is in control, but they will be in control. And again, remember, this is true for any kind of wealth. What we do, brothers and sisters, with our wealth matters. It matters now, and it matters eternally. James says, James 5.1, Come now, you who are rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He's saying there's a type of spirit in a wealthy person who has been hoarding their wealth 
that does not understand that they have a consequence coming to them for their hoarding of their wealth, and that is an eternal consequence. What we do with our resources evidences the reality of what or who is our true God. How do you know you're safe? Is it because of what's in your bank account? The number of locks on your front door? How big your house is? How do you know you're significant? Is it because of what you own? Or how beautiful your home is? Or how healthy you are? What we do with our resources evidences our true God. In James 5.3, James says, Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure. Remember what Jesus said, do not lay up treasure in your last days. None of us would do this, right? None of us would actually just sort of like keep our closets full of clothes that other people could actually use, even though we haven't worn those clothes in years. Uh Uh-oh, did I hit a little close to home? None of us would keep multiple pairs of shoes that we don't wear. Do you see how easy this is? To lay up treasure when we could be giving it away and serving others with it. Brothers and sisters, James says, do you understand that God hears those who have been defrauded through your neglect or through your intentionality? He hears those you have failed to serve. He hears them, and He listens to them. James 5.4, He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And He's not just talking about cheating the kid who mowed your lawn. All right? He's saying, listen, there are people out there that you have either a genuine financial obligation to or a moral obligation to, and they are crying out to God because you have not been stewarding your wealth. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this, that your comfort is not the goal of your resources? Your comfort is not the goal of your resources. Now, do not hear me saying that it is bad to, be, to enjoy a nice meal or to have clothes that are adequate or to have a decent car or a decent house. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the objective for a Christian involving your resources should not be primarily for you to be comfortable while everybody else is suffering. James stands so strongly against this. He says this, You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. This is not simply individualistic, by the way. This is systemic and even nationalistic. Just this last week, U.S. Congress people tweeting out ridiculous things, saying, we need to take care of America first. Folks, five million Ukrainians are on the run. Amongst them are literally tens, if not hundreds of thousands, of your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. 
Don't listen to fools who are trying to tell you to prioritize your own comfort instead of sacrificing for others. James wants us to grasp that our capital, which remember is wealth in any form, is not our confidence. It's not where we find our security. It's not where we find our significance. It's not what we boast in or talk about. He understands clearly how important it is for us to find our confidence in something else. Now, yesterday, many of us got to be part of Secret Church. It was a true blessing. If you didn't get to be there, by the way, we've got some extra books. We can give you a link for the next 60 days. You can study it on your own or find somebody who went, and you can be strongly encouraged through that. But uh, David Platt used this wonderful passage. It was so good, I had to throw it into this morning's message. I actually went home and redid my notes uh, just so that I could... Uh, bring this passage into it. It's so good because it hit exactly this point right here. It's from the Old Testament. The prophet Jeremiah is saying the same thing, the same thing that James says. He says, this, uh, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. If you're really smart, you think you've got it all figured out, don't make that your confidence. He says, let not the mighty man boast in his might. You're very strong, you're powerful, you're healthy. Don't let that be your confidence. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord that practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. If somebody came up to you and said, how do you know you're going to be okay tomorrow? Is your answer, I know the living God, and He practices steadfast love, and He is always righteous in all of His ways, and He always ensures justice. No matter what happens to my body, you know, whatever happens to my home, whatever happens to my family, I know Him. Is that where your confidence is? James wants us, brothers and sisters, to have not only a joyful, humble creatureliness and a joyfully humble capital, he wants us to have a joyful, humble confidence. Let's see how we pull all of this together. Go back to verse 9. Here's verse 9, now that you have this context, all right? Let the lowly brother, that's the person who has little in any area, let that person in humble circumstances, poor, that could be the person that doesn't have good health, it could be the person that doesn't have a lot of stuff, it could be the person that's not very smart or not very educated, let them boast in his exaltation. In the exaltation that comes from God, and the fact that God is the one who lifts people up. It's not just simply in church that rich people should boast in their being brought down, but anybody who experiences any kind of poverty, they can recognize that before God, they are always being lifted up and brought into the same place. Can I just remind all of us that none of us were chosen for the kingdom of God because of our resources? Jesus did not look around and go, well, I'm picking Josie because she's a super billionaire. He did not look at Ken and said, I'm picking him because he's the smartest man on earth. He did not 
pick Maria because he said she's got more friends than anybody else. And if, if she knows me, then everybody else will like me. She's got a huge social media platform. That's how we pick people. When you're on the playground as a little kid, you pick the fastest kid, the smartest kid, whatever it is, you pick the kids that that are your best friends or the friends that everybody else likes, right? You pick the people that have power. Jesus didn't choose you for any of those reasons. James 2.5. James makes it explicit. Listen, he says, (laughs) because he knows people in church, they, they lose the tension, right? He says, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are wealthy and powerful and smart and good-looking? No. Who did God choose according to James? He chose the poor. The poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him. Do you understand? God did not choose you because He needed you. You are not super special. You are made in His image, uniquely created to image forth His glory. But that is true of every person that's ever been created, ever. Understanding this, Paul would preach this sermon And he would say, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need us individually. He doesn't need us corporately. He doesn't need this church to save this city. He doesn't need our denomination to save America. He doesn't need America to do anything. And he sure the heck doesn't need a guy who's living in a White House. Ever. He gives everything. We are not chosen for the kingdom because we are awesome. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those of us that are humble with all that we've been given, we get to receive the kingdom of God. God graces and exalts the humble. James makes this point. Did you hear it earlier when I was reading through all those passages? Did it hit you when James says this in verse 6? He says, God always gives more grace, more grace than we deserve, more grace than we need. He gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to who? Who gets God's grace? The humble. You don't get grace without humility. Do you understand what I just said? There is no salvation for the prideful. Period. There's salvation for murderers. There's salvation for rapists. There is salvation for pedophiles. There are salvation for anyone who will humble themselves before the living God. 
But the person who is prideful of their religiosity and their good works and their high moral standing and their achievements in this world who will not humble themselves before the Lord, there is no grace for them. God opposes them. They're enemies of God. His topsy-turvy kingdom includes a bunch of misfits and ragamuffins, none of whom deserve to be there. And they know it. It's the people who think they can and ought to be there that can't be there. James says, humble yourself before the Lord. He will exalt you. He will exalt you. He's, again, he's not saying anything that Jesus himself hasn't already said. Luke 14, 11, Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself, you lift yourself up, you say, I'm powerful, I'm smart, I'm amazing, I'm all of these things, you will be humbled. And again, that is not just true for individuals, it's true for organizations, it's true for nations. Be very careful of the person who wants you to be incredibly prideful of your nation. You should say back to them, every nation that lifts itself up against God will be humbled. Every nation that lifts itself up against the living God will be humbled. Jesus has made it clear, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. James is saying what his brother Jesus said. Listen, when you come into church, he says, listen, you came without You came without reason to be there. You came without spiritual wealth. You came without health. You came without physical wealth within this world. Good news. You get to be exalted by the living God. Is that not amazing? Our salvation, and by that, I mean our justification before God legally. I mean our regeneration, our new birth. I mean our sanctification to be made holy. I mean our faith by which we appropriate the grace of God. All of it is an eternal gift of God, an undeserved grace. So James says this. Did you miss this earlier when we went through it? It's easy to miss. Of whose will did God bring you forth? Was it your will? Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Of his own will, he has brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his new creation. Yeah, right? Do you see that? Who chose? Jesus chose. Before you were born, chose to make you an object of his grace. Over and over again, Peter's going to say the same thing. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. You are passive. You're spiritually dead. God has made you spiritually alive. You didn't have any choice of that. He gave you a new life. You're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul says the same thing to the Ephesian church. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one, no one, no one boasts. Period. God will not let His glory be stolen. Now, here's good news. 
for those who humble themselves. God dwells with the humble. That's why James can say, when you come to church, the poor know that you matter as much as anybody else. You come to church, you say, I'm I'm just a single woman without much money. Oh, you matter, sister, as much as anybody else that's present. And the person that's got the PhD in theology and who's got their life all together and who lives in a big house, they come to church and they say, you know what? None of that matters. I'm the same as my sister over here. That matters. Because we're brought to this place where we understand all that we have and all that we've been given eternally is there by God's grace. And God is present amongst us. Amongst us. Isaiah says this, For God, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who's exalted? Is it you? Me? No, it's God, right? He's the high and lifted up one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place, and here's a mystery. And I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly or humble spirit. I dwell there to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Maybe that can be best seen in God made flesh, Jesus Christ, who came to dwell amongst a poor people in a poor land, oppressed and enslaved by the greatest powers of His age, to defeat the powers of that kingdom and all kingdoms. Jesus came incarnate for you and for me. He chose the path of servant humility. So, Paul says to the Philippian church, same thing James says, Be like Jesus. Have this same mind amongst yourselves, which was the mind of Jesus Christ. Though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He did what? He emptied Himself. He went low. The God who had all power, all beauty, all significance enters into broken humanity in one of the most broken places, in the most poverty-stricken ways, to die on a garbage heap for you. Because God comes to take the form of a servant. Jesus obeyed God on the path of humility. Brothers and sisters, being in human, found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Oh, what good news this is, that God would humble Himself. How can His church not approach life the same way? It's where life is found. In dying, we are raised and exalted by the living God. God the Father has exalted Jesus as the Savior of the humble, and He exalts all His children. We need to end with this. This is a reminder to us. God, therefore has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. See, when we come to church, there's one person who gets exalted here. It's not me, and it's not you. There's one hero, and His name is Jesus.
He gets the name that's above every name. And it's at His name that every knee bows in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confesses that He is Lord. Can I just say to you, you have a choice today. You can bow your knee willingly now, here today, and say, I need a Savior, and I need you to be Lord in my life. You will bow your knee in all eternity. But those who don't bow their knee now will always be separated from me. Don't you want to dwell with the God of the universe? Let's humble ourselves. Let's go before Him in prayer. Father God, take now these broken, imperfect, and I, I fear uh, diminishing words. Send them home into our hearts, our minds, our inmost being. Bring forth life, faith, joy. Oh, we rejoice that here the humble are lifted up and the wealthy, the powerful, those you've gifted with more are brought down. All of us need you. So let us take all that you have given us and steward it for your glory, for your good, for the advancement of your kingdom. We do not have the strength, ability, or wisdom to do this on our own, so we cry out to you asking for greater grace. In Jesus' name, our Lord, we ask these things. Amen.